Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. If you are a high performer looking for practical advice to hack your consciousness, to have more impact, to have more fulfillment, you came to the right place. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can go out and navigate your own hero's journey. Now, of course, if you have any friends who can use some of this, go ahead and share with them. So then that way they can benefit from your discovery. Before I introduce my next guest, let me ask you a question. How do you know yourself deeper and live a life more expressed? My next guest, Adam Quiney, is the podcast host of Get Lit with Adam Quiney. He's also the founder of Evergrowth Coaching. He and I had a deep discussion about his hero's journey from being a lawyer to a software developer to now executive coach. We talk about how to create our own art of expression with more courage, integrity, and unique brilliance. Specifically, three types of brilliance, head-based, heart-based, and spirit-based. We talked about walking a tightrope of loving ourselves exactly as we are and developing ourselves. We talked about being connected to our heart. We talked about the three tenets of improving our lives, beliefs, actions, and environment. We talked about our resistance as the linchpin to our next breakthroughs. We talked about finding our dharmic path by leaning to our resistance. We talked about how not to give any significance to our struggles. We talked about how plant medicine opens a new window to go beyond our mind, going beyond ourselves, how having a relationship is the deepest spiritual path. We talked about a lot of us want more love but aren't willing to walk through the gates to receive more love. We talked about how to ask for what we need as human beings. We talked about how to be an empowering partner. We talked about how sharing ourselves on social media as a spiritual path. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam Quiney. I wanted you to describe a little bit about the physical and also the internal transformation that you had. Because four years ago, you were talking about really pay attention to the way you dress, the way you look, and very particular about certain things. And, and now I like the way you look. You look like a ninja from the mountain. So I love that. So <laughs> share with us a little bit about the physical transformation four years ago to today. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying I've always loved style. That's just been something that's been of interest to me ever since I was a kid. And what I learned to do, I always had an eye for what makes a good outfit or whatever. And what I learned to do was to hide, to dress in such a way that it gave me a thing to hide behind. So like you would see me and be like, oh, that guy's well put together and he's got a good, that tie looks good with that suit. But it was like all of that was, it was a barrier to connecting. And so it was really interesting because if you were to say, if you were to try to reflect that to, to me and say, Hey, I notice the way you dress creates a barrier. I'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm following the rules of how to dress well. And I'm, I'm doing everything the, the right way, which to me is such a fascinating example of how what we're doing sometimes is incongruent with the being underneath. So all that to say, what started to happen was a few things. I I got into a lot of men's work, which brought me into breath work and consciousness and 
learning to embody alpha or masculine energy and doing that gave me some ground to stand on rather than have this house of cards made up out of like outfits and funky style and all of that stuff. And I also had the great opportunity to work with some people that reflected a lot of this to me in a way I could hear, like a way they could get in where they'd be like, yeah, yeah, the style's great. It's just loud. And we can't, we can't be with you. We can't hear you through it. It's in the way of us getting to fully be with you. And so that started to open things up and, and allow the opportunity to step into something deeper. Mm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. When I was in ceremony, a quick share, when I was in ceremony by myself doing my solo journey, and there was an impulse of looking myself in the mirror. And the man in the mirror doesn't quite reflect the man that I know. So then in the middle of the ceremony, I started like cutting my hair and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I don't recommend it to anyone else. But that impulse, right, that desire of really being congruent to the internal image, to the external image, I think that's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. So do you feel like that when you look into the mirror, you're like the man that you see that is it congruent to the image that you have in your mind? It's... It's interesting because I noticed there's always the ego never, tr at least my experience is the ego never truly goes away. I just learned to, to work better with it, to not have it. There's always some level of fear. There's always the next edge we're at. And there's a lot of things I look in the mirror and really connect with who I am. And I'm really delighted by all that. And then there's places where I still am. I guess the best way to put it is like resistant to loving myself. So like I'm carrying a little weight on my stomach and every time I take my shirt off to go to bed, I'm like, ah, the weight in my stomach, if I could just get that. And I have mm. enough consciousness now to know, yeah, if I could just get that, then there'll be a new thing that I could mm -hmm. just get. And then a thing after that. Mm -hmm. And so there's like this tightrope between loving myself exactly as I am with all of my foibles and still being committed to developing ever greater art. So I am committed to losing some weight because there's a healthier version of me that I can live into. But I'm just fascinated by like, the work's never done. There's always an edge. And thank goodness, because it makes life interesting. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you articulated. We have an audience of overachievers who is over <laughs> self who's deeply believing, even if they don't have words for it, who deeply believe in self-actualization, Kaizen, self-transcendence, going after it, whatever phraseology that you go after, it's essentially this intrinsic desire for growth. Yes. And, and uh, as you said beautifully, it's not, it's, it's not one way or the other. Let's just go after it and without really being concerned about this internal voice, what we think about. And also it's not just, oh, surrender to the flow and just whatever, however I look, I'm going to love myself fully. Yes. And could you do both? Uh -huh. That's definitely what we were talking about here. So I, I really appreciate the way you, you say it. Can you share with us a little bit about this journey of reclaiming self-love? Because I would say to most men, especially, this idea of love and self-acceptance sounds a little bit soft and woo-woo and weak and 
So what would you say to the younger CK or the younger Adam who, who feels a little strange hearing these two grown men talking about self-love in a sense? Huh. Let me sit with that because it's a rich question with a lot of paths. Let me talk about the younger Adam first. Interrupt me if you're like, hey, I want you to go in this direction instead. Sure. Or if you have a question or whatever. But so the younger Adam was a man who had a big heart, but early on learned that was a liability. Big heart meant I felt disappointment. I felt betrayal. I felt hurt when I would ask a friend, do you want to play? And they said, oh, no, I'm good. I'm doing something. I would like, oh, I'm crushed. I'm devastated. And so I learned early on, that's a liability, run everything up through my brain, think through stuff, analyze stuff. And so life became about what existed in my brain and what I could operationalize and make efficient and analyze. <clears throat> it was like a life through thought. And so the interesting thing about your question, you're talking about young Adam and love is young Adam would have told you in brilliantly articulated detail about how he has love in his life while simultaneously being totally disconnected from it. So I wouldn't, I don't, I, I think the way I would have listened to us talk about this would have been to take it and then put it inside the contraption in my head and be like, oh, here's why I have exactly what they're talking about while simultaneously being like, and never mind the fact that there's no intimacy in my marriage. And never mind the fact that I'm often surrounded by people and feel completely alone. Let's not worry about those things because here's all the reasons why I already have love. Yeah. So I could say more from there, but I just want to pause to give you a chance to, to point me in the right direction if there's a direction for us to go from that initial statement. Yeah, let, let me reflect back on what I'm hearing. When I read your writing, when I hear you talk, there's a lot of resonance because I see myself in the story that you share. Like uh -huh. I said in the very beginning, like, hey, I'm talking to a kindred spirit. I uh -huh. get you because I've been there. So I totally understand. The younger CK would be the, the body's whole job is to carry the head. Everything mm. is about the head. It's about figuring things out. It's about being cerebral. It's being about being the smartest and, uh, and forgetting that there are moments where I'm surrounded by people who love me, surrounded by people who I'm blessed to be with, and yet still feel very isolated, very alone. Yeah. And, and never really appreciating like, oh, it's just an, a phenomenon being dissociated. Yes. With the present moment, with the body. And it wasn't until a few years ago, I was like, oh, all these theories that I read about from the Dalai Lama, from the holy man. Oh, this is what they mean. I mean, <laughs> this experience is so much better than just staying here. You know, yeah. Like so I, I remember for me, the, the moment it, the moment it first started to click, like the moment there was even this thought that came into my head that there could be something beyond what I have, because the, the way we construct our reality is they're, they're perfectly contained. So like my beliefs about everything encompasses everything. And there's not much room for anything beyond that until someone knocks me off of my 
my path. And I'm like, holy crap, there's so much more available. And I didn't realize that. And so the first crack in the perfectly constructed reality I had was when someone was working with me and they asked me, have you ever been devastated by love? And I remember very clearly being like, I don't even know what that means. So let's go with no. And that was the, that didn't solve anything, but that was just the, the first crack. Oh, there's an idea, concept, way of love occurring that is totally foreign to me. I couldn't even tell you what that would be like to be devastated by love. So what is it like to be devastated by love? If you don't mind bringing us back to that moment. Yeah. What I've discovered over time is it's painful and it's heartbreak and it's a lot of us want more love in our life, but we're unwilling to walk through the gate that is required, which is the gate of heartbreak. If you protect yourself from heartbreak, which is what I'd done, how could you ever fully love someone? Because you're always guarding. There's always a degree to which you're not willing to let people in. And so being devastated by love is the way that started to show up in my marriage was getting a lot more hurt by my wife for so long. I was Teflon. So she would have emotions in our relationship and I would be impenetrable. I'd be the stoic white knight that nothing got to, which kind of worked in a way. We were balanced to an extent, but there was no, there could be no polarity between us. There was no true love because true love requires being unguarded, being undefended. And then that's how it devastates us. We love something to such an extent that it hurts when something happens. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm. There's a lot of different directions we can take. <laughs> you know, since we're talking about love and relationships and spousals and and things like that, let's go there. So, being in relationship with a significant other, in my mind, is one of the most transformative path that one could take for yes. self-actualization, really because it's it's one of the most challenging one because you totally. are with that person all the time you're supposed you're quote unquote there's a lot of constructs that we inherited from society yes this is what true love is you look at the romantic comedies oh look at that we're supposed right. to be happily ever after but the reality of it in my mind it's very you know it's this I had to be graphic, but it's like a crucible, right? You step into it, you know, knowing that it's going to be highest of highs, bliss, yes. as well as the lowest of lows. This is your co-pilot. You both are saying yes to going to that roller coaster, right? Yeah. So I'm curious to know if you agree with that metaphor or not. 100%. Yeah, like I've heard smart people. So you just have to, we just have to trust it because smart people said this, but relate to relationship as the deepest spiritual practice. And I find I'm constantly coming up against that and not like, the deepest spiritual practice is not like this idea of sitting in church and a, a halo of light comes down from the sky and touches you on the forehead. Like the deepest spiritual practice in the sense that I can be so absolutely convinced that what's showing up in our relationship is over there with my wife and then getting supported by my coach or whoever to see, ah, oh, frig, this is, 
yes, there's something over there because there always is, but like the work for me to take on is on my side and there's always a reciprocal. So whatever's showing up over there, there's also the reciprocal of it showing up on my side and that's my work. And boy, is that challenging to get off my high horse be like, okay, yeah, maybe I can see something over there and it doesn't matter because the work's over here on this side. Yeah. It's how we respond to our objective reality, how we respond yeah. to our how we're responsible to our subject reality. How do I take the words, the actions, what she should do or shouldn't do, and then take that and manage it internally? I, I so one of the person that I really respect is Brooke Castillo, and she recently went through a divorce herself, but she's a a coach, a master coach. So I was listening to her, and she said, "Before you finish anything, out of hurry, out of it's more comfortable mm. when I exit, I bring a lot of love to it, so you can exit in love and with love, because then it's from choice." Yeah. Rather than, holy shit, this feels like I'm being punched on the floor over and over again in the stomach over and over again. It's like fucking sucks when you get out. <laughs> right? You know, we all have been there. So I mean, I don't want to project, but I've been there. Yeah. And and the way she said it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me because and it correlates back to what you were saying earlier. We feel the way we feel, it's going to be the same. Even if you get married, even when you have kids, even when you have gazillion dollars in the bank, yes. how you feel, it's the same. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to know your thought. If you agree with that, don't agree with that, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, so the way I would word it is the way we be will be the same regardless of our surrounding circumstances. So if someone, if part of how someone bees in the world is terrified about commitment, just to come up with something nice and broad, then getting, then that's gonna get expressed to some extent in their relationships. And then often people are like, oh, the, the solution here is for me to get married because then I'm locked in. But all they've done is assemble different looking circumstances around themselves. And it's, I think it's the Zen saying goes like, wherever you go, there you are. And so you're gonna end up in a committed marriage. And of course, you're still gonna be the same way if you haven't done that work to change that, to create the transformation. And so you're gonna now be the expression of terrified about commitment inside a commitment. And who knows how that'll, nat like that'll look in practice, but it's gonna get expressed one way or the other. And to me, that's part of what's so cool about all of this is we can have this internal story. I'm going to go to money now, like money is scarce. And one of the things people try to do is they try to earn their way out of that story. But where you end up is someone who's got the internal story that money is scarce with $10 million, which is why we have all these millionaires terrified about the money running out and clutching for more. It just, you can't. You can't change your circumstances to change your internal state. It doesn't work. Yeah, totally. I I know a few who fit that exact. <laughs> yeah, me too. Which is great. And that's part of their journey, part of their path. You know, judgment, yes. right? 
every single one of us are imperfectly perfect human beings. And we all have different stories that we're working it out. And it's totally cool that there's this uh, around money or some people's around love, how unlovable they are, or some people may be the way they look and et cetera. That's one of the reasons why I love talking to other philosopher entrepreneurs, coaches, because every single one of us is on this path. Yes. I, I, I hope the people who are watching this are not saying, oh, these are guys from the mountaintop giving you this holy scripture. No, we're on the same journey. Maybe we know a couple of things. Maybe we have some lessons and some stories. And hopefully, if you want to, you can take some of these actionable tactics or you know, mental models with you, you know, if it serves you, of course. Beautiful. And, and by the way, I want to bring it back to who are listening people who are listening we're not just talking about marriage and relationship are we can you see based on your experience your personal as well as your coaching experiences with your clients do you see a transference to the area of career money covid and other things i'm curious to know if you have other stories like that's 100 percent yeah this is part of what's compelling about the work I and, and I and if you get to do and so frustrating for us as humans I think because again everywhere we go there we are so if I have let's say that my relationship to commitment is that it's imprisoning and then I'm going to go into my life and I'm going to try to live my life in response to that relationship to commitment so I'm going to do things like, first of all, I'm going to notice all the people that are in commitment that are imprisoned. I'm going to look for the evidence to support my belief. I'm going to find myself into relationships that are the expression of that. So that means I'll either jump from relationship to relationship, and maybe I have a great sex life as a result of it. Like it doesn't all have to be bad. Or I'll get into relation the relationships I do get into that I stick with will leave me with the experience of being imprisoned. So I'll either create the reality or avoid creating that same reality. And then I'll get into careers where that same thing happens. So like I'll find myself into jobs where I don't have to get too committed or when the time comes that I need to commit in order to create a particular result, I'm going to be stuck in the experience of being imprisoned. And so, and then we could like just look in someone's life and everywhere we look where commitment would show up, we're going to see that particular belief expressed in some way or the other. And to me, that's fascinating because it's just like, holy cow. The neat thing there is if I practice over here, I'm also going to be practicing over there. I can create a breakthrough by working with my partner, my romantic partner, and it's going to create shifts in my work, my career, my whatevers. Yeah, it's uh, hugely transformative. Yeah. So can you share with us maybe some practice that you have? that you may have to really concretize it and like, you know, make it a little bit more practical. How do sure. you, let's say you weren't aware of it before somebody told you, holy shit, I've been using, following the same example, fear of commitment, let's say. And, oh yeah, I can now see the pattern, but how the heck do I get out? Right. Can you share with us maybe some practices that, that, that you do or that you advise your clients to do so then they can practice getting out of this Chinese finger trap. Yeah, totally. 
let me just think how to set this up because we want to make this nice and general. So the starting point would be like any particular thing around which people want to create a shift. So it could be money or it could be the way relationship goes, or it could be your career or the fact that you always seem to have a boss that's a jerk to you or whatever. So that's starting point is like, where's an area that we want to create a shift. And then what we tend to do when, so I'm going to first talk about what we typically do. And then what I would suggest as a practice, that's not what we typically do. What we typically do is we're like, here's the thing I want to create a shift around. How do I change my circumstances? So if it's my boss is a jerk, get a new job. Money is scarce. Find a job that pays me more money or find a way to be content living with less money. We can go to either side of the particular, the two poles. So all of that is typically about changing our circumstances. And this is why New Year's resolutions are often, they either fail, we just give up on them, or why we create the result, but then it doesn't really change our lives that much. It's like we've just rearranged the furniture inside the same apartment is because it's usually devoted to changing our circumstances and expecting that's gonna create a different experience of life. What I would suggest people do is get clear, what is the thing around which I'd love to create a shift? And then start by writing out all of your beliefs about that particular thing. So if we were talking about money, you might write at the top of a page, like money is, and then answer, just keep filling that out. So be like money is the root of all evil. Money is something that controls you. Money is dangerous. People with money are greedy and corrupt. People without money are holy and humble. You just keep writing out all these beliefs. And there's a lot more we can start to do with that. But what that's going to have people do is start to realize the lens through which they view the world and the lens through which they act. And I can go further into this if you'd like, but that's if people just started to do one thing, that would be where I'd start them. Is so that we're starting to notice the water we swim in rather than just trying to do something different inside that same water. Yeah. So what you're saying is using writing out the beliefs around it as a way to make the subconscious conscious. Yes. You know, yeah, that, exactly. right? you know, until you make the subconscious conscious, you will call it fate. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now say I write down a list of beliefs around, let's say money and okay, so now I'm more aware of it, then what? So let me draw the model for how I see people create their lives inadvertently, and then we'll come back to this. So okay. there's basically three parts that dictates how something goes in relation to money or relationship or whatever. The first is our beliefs. So we have all our beliefs about relationship. For example, we'll use money. So I've got beliefs that you have to work hard to make money. We'll use that as one belief. And we've got a whole bunch of beliefs. And as humans, we're belief-making machines. So some people hearing this are like, great, I'll just not have beliefs about something. No, you can't do that. That's not the way the human mind works. And even to have no belief about something is still to hold a kind of belief. It's just like a weird so just don't try to do that. Just take my word for it. Yeah, like basically what that person just said is, again, using the Chinese finger trap example, it's no beliefs is better than having beliefs. Therefore, I'm going to believe that. So that is exactly. 
old statement for sure. Yeah, yeah, I love that metaphor and how you put it. So we can't escape it. We, we just have to accept, oh, that's what we do. We create meaning. So we start with our beliefs. And then from those beliefs, we have a set of actions we take. And those actions can either be in reaction to the beliefs or consistent with the beliefs, which are the same thing. So if I believe you have to work hard to make money, I'm going to have a bunch of actions I'll take. I'll find my way into a career that rewards me with money for working hard, such as, for example, law, which was my background. Or we'll do things like, I don't want to work hard, so I'm going to find a way to be content not making a lot of money. Or I don't want to work hard, but I do want to take vacations. And so people with those beliefs end up creating lives where like, they find a way to be really resourceful so they can take vacations, but not have to work hard, and at the same time, not have much money. So we have a bunch of actions we take from our beliefs give us our actions. The third part in this is that our actions, the way we act in the world, creates an environment or a world around us that's consistent with those actions. So I'm going to end up in a career with a bunch of people working hard to make money. And I'm going to ostracize the people that seem to be making a bunch of money but aren't working hard because I'm going to create some kind of story that's consistent with my beliefs that they're cheating or they're liars or they're thieves or I don't want to be around them. It's all self-contained. And then here's the punchline is that world around us proves and reconfirms the beliefs. So it's all self-contained and it feeds back in itself. And so what happens is people try to just change their actions without being aware of any of this stuff. And then the world pushes them back into the same shape that they were before because they created it to do or people go to a, a Tony Robbins event or sit in an ayahuasca ceremony and are like, oh my God, everything's going to be different. And then they come back to that world and it, because they have no ongoing support, it, it slowly but surely nudges them back into the way life was before. Yeah. So beliefs to actions to world or environment and then back to beliefs. Yeah. I you like want to that. say something there? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It, it a lot of times we go to these peak experiences, seminars, ceremonies as a way to lift the veil, to see truth for what it is. And we, yes. and, then, and then it's easy for the ego of mine to say, all right, I get it. I got the answer. I'm going <laughs> to change my way and I'm going to change my actions. And they don't put infrastructure in place. Yes. And predictably they're going to go back to the way they were because the momentum, the gravity of their existing way of being, their existing social infrastructures, the existing physical infrastructure, the existing habitual infrastructures are all there to keep them where they're at. Yes. So I love the fact that you talk about this. Yeah, for yes. sure. This is also why when a coach or a therapist or a friend is, it's just your story. That's why that doesn't work because on the one hand, it is just a story. It's a belief we've created, but at the same time, we've created a world around us that is concrete reality, proving that belief true. So it's simultaneously just a story and at the same time, not just a story and just trying to tell ourselves, oh, I just need to change my belief. It's setting us up because that's not sufficient. We actually have to act differently in all this stuff. So to bring it back to where we started, you list out all your beliefs, and then the next thing to do would be to make a list of all of the actions that you take as a result of those beliefs. So, okay, you got to work hard to make money. What are the things I do as a result of that? 
I throw off money and I refuse to work hard and I learn to live without a lot of money and I'm very resourceful. And I judge people with a lot of money for being slaves to capitalism. And I blah, 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 blah. And none of this stuff necessarily will create the change we might want. What it does is it puts us in a position to actually see how the world around us is something we're actively creating. And with that altitude, then we have access to like really cause a change that will make a difference as opposed to up, just can you, yeah. came back in one sentence. You lost me yeah. in this something about yeah. altitude one more time. Yeah. First of all, when people hear this, they're like, okay, I lay out my beliefs and then I lay out my actions, but Adam, that's not going to change anything. Like I need to change this. And I agree just listing this stuff out isn't going to change anything. What it will do is it's going to give you altitude. It's going to let you see the greater pattern and see how, oh, even the solution I try to take from the thing I'm relating to as a problem is more of the pattern. The very thing I try to do to shift stuff actually recreates the problem in the first place. And then, oh, I just keep doing it. And so that gives us access to power to make a difference because now we can see the greater picture then we can start to do something that would really make a difference as opposed to just the next step in the same pattern over and over again yeah for sure there's certainly a lot to unpack here and i don't want to make our podcast be very prescriptive to someone yes. who's listening to this because again uh correct me if i'm wrong we can go super geeky or like the meta <laughs> yes. concepts and so forth, but I want to make it practical for them. But I want to do a quick summary first. So in my yeah. mind, essentially what you're extrapolating here, what you're, what you're elaborating here is this whole concept of be, do, have, right? So really going back to underlying what is my mentality around the things that I do already and then getting closer and closer to the way who am I being in this moment? Am I being resourceful or have limiting beliefs around certain things? Is that yes. a good recap of what you said? Yep, that's great. Cool. So let's go back to you, Adam. I love I'm that curious subject. to know the way of being. No, I love that subject. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good. No, okay. So let's actually do this in a parallel track here. You started being public. You step into the journey of being public about seven years ago. I mean, that's the earliest YouTube video that I found of you. Yeah. And, and you're still doing it very actively today. Can you share with us a little bit about this journey of being prominent? And then I want to make it, people who are listening to this, listen from the place of what does it take to be public, to be a thought leader, to really stand out, to lead. So if you can share with, with us your journey of being prominent, that would be really great. Yeah, so I've been writing for maybe 20 years, like since the early days of the internet, blogging and stuff like that, and then video about seven years ago and early on most of what i wrote was to be seen so like i was writing with the intent like the the need to be seen 
So all my writing was like, how do I grab someone's attention and make them look at me and notice me and find me valuable, all of that stuff. So pretty egoic. And, and that was tedious, I think, for everyone on some level. It's not that what I wrote didn't entertain or provide value. Like it wasn't bereft of value. It's just that first and foremost, the primary cause, like the primary reason to do any of that was look at me. And so we feel that on some level when people are reading, we've all had that where you read a post written by someone and you're like, this post was written to sell your course. Like I can, you're writing something, but that's still what I'm feeling. And so that's the energy I'm interacting with primarily. What started to happen, actually what had to happen was I had to surrender any thought about having people like me. It's not that I didn't, that I was like, then I'm just going to say hateful stuff, but more like I had to let go. I had to die that ego death, I guess we'll call it, of what if people never pay attention to what I write? And what if I never am a thought leader or anything like that? Now what? do I still want to write? And so from that place, I could start to write my own truth. And as I learned to be more fully expressed as a man, just in his life, my writing also started to reflect that. And, and so I think if someone were to follow along, they would, that's the biggest thing they would notice is like less, less the energy of look at me, like me, find me valuable and more, more just Adam being expressed as Adam and not doing it. I'm a truth teller, so I don't care if you, what I say, right? Cause that's just the other end of the spectrum. There's not really much growth there, but more, like, Hey, I, I want to provide value. But first and foremost, that my commitment is that I'm expressing what's real for me. And that's really made a difference because when times are tough and when I post a video and no one likes it, or I still have an ego. So when no one shares my post or anything, I can still keep writing because the deeper commitment is just to be in the practice of expressing my art into the world as purely as I can. I really love how you phrase it. It's an art. Mm. What, do you, what, do, what do you think this is, this is an art of? How would you describe this word art in your case? Yeah, I would say everyone, you can see it, but children are fully expressed because they haven't been trained by the world not to show up as the way they are. And then growing up, we're taught like, oh, I'm too much. I'm not enough. I'm selfish. Whatever story we're trained in, stories. And that gets in the way then of us expressing the art. I would call it like the art of our own expression. So my art in the world is like those things you read at the start, like connecting with human beings, being connection, being a presence in the room being witty and, and making people laugh and, and the expression of brilliance. And you and I share that quality. And so the beautiful thing about that art is that my job is to express brilliance in whatever I'm doing. So if it's this conversation, it's to be the, expressing the quality of being of brilliance in this conversation. If it's playing squash, then it's to express brilliance in the way I'm playing squash. And that's my art expressed in the world. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. <sighs> As Lao Tzu said in the Tao Te Ching first sentence, if mm. th there are no words 
if a word can describe the Tao, it's not the eternal Tao. So I'm asking that question purposefully, not necessarily to get a the answer or the definition. It's in discussing it that whatever felt sensation emerged in the way that you describe it is all. Uh -huh. Yeah, actually said the finger pointing to the moon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Actually, say more about that. Say more about it, that. It's this the same idea of we can't ever really capture the Tao through words, but words can bring us closer to the, like even in the expression of it, it can bring us closer to that thing. The finger pointing to the moon is another thing where we often mistake, oh, look, the, it's like a conversation about leadership because that's often work I'm in. Oh, I'm talking about leadership, so I'm a leader. Mm, no, talking about leadership points us towards it. But leadership is something experienced and expressed in the moment. It has nothing to do with the words being used. Yeah. Similar when people ask me, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? I got the finger pointing at the moon from Bruce Lee. He says, hey, uh, religion is like the finger pointing at the moon. Look at the moon. Don't look at the finger. Uh -huh. I, like, oh, I really love that. So it's a very similar concept that way. So thank you yeah. for articulating it. And actually, well, I wanted to hone in on this point a bit because some of my friends who is very grounded, very practical, they think, man, CK, you're so philosophical. And why do you continue to look at the past, you know, the wounds? And why do you continue to look at the future? Why don't you just live your life? Why do you keep discussing these very metaphysical concepts over and over? And the, my response to them is exactly what Lao Tzu said. It's, it's the truth. It's not the thing, the end point to point. It's in the discussing of it, the truth emerged from that. So that's why I continuously talk about similar concepts, 500 you know, billion different angles. Curious to know your thoughts. Why do you talk about it on Instagram, podcasts, writing, and coaching sessions. I'm curious to know. Let me get the words or let them come to me rather. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm clear words are, they're, they're never going to capture the truth, but they're the best tool we have often to get to the truth. And so really what I'm about is I want to support people and model a life fully expressed. So if people, they don't have to, if people are like, I don't want to do that. I want to stay where I am. Great. I got no problem with that. But there's lots of people that are like, I would love to be more fully expressed in my life, more of me showing up into my life as it shows up to me. And that's the heart of why I do anything. I'm hoping that I can write in such a way or share a video or have someone see someone else move through something that then inspires them to take a step that might have them show up more fully expressed in their life. And then to go back to what your friend said about like, why be, you know, present or past or future? It's always like the middle path where some people are entirely focused on the present which is great, except then that means you don't have the capacity to receive the future or the past. And so you end up recreating, like recreating the mistakes of the past and blundering into the future. On the other hand, there's people that are entirely focused on the future or the past, and they don't ever 
get to live in the moment. And where I'm often fascinated with people is less about what is the right place for us to turn our attention and more, what are the limits of someone's range? And if we can broaden their range, so like for the people that are like, just live in the moment, yeah, but what if you could live in the moment and see the future and the past? That's going to open up so much more available to them, both as life expands and, and just in their own experience of it. So that's the thing that's most fascinating to me is broadening range. I, you know, just love that you use that magic word range because that's exactly the way I think about it. I don't want to geek out and have a bromance here, but, but I have to. <laughs> if you think about our physicality, a lot of people say, I just want to be super strong. I and mean, what, what ended up happening is, yeah, they don't stretch. So they have very yes. limited range. You know, if you really think about Olympians, world-class athletes, they have power in their full range. So similarly, what you're describing, the way I'm articulate or, or unpacking here in, is, yes, develop your capacity, healing your wounds from the past, develop a capacity in being the present moment, develop a capacity projecting forward so you can go towards where the wave is going to be, the future is going to be. But when I, what you're saying is develop a full range of it. So you have full capacity to pull out the tool whenever the situation needs you to do. Is that an accurate reflection of what you, of what you that's said? Beautifully put. Yeah, that's exactly right. Anything else you wanted to elaborate on the uh, unpack? Yeah, some things people can action on here, actually, which would be like to notice where our resistance is, because that's the compass. So if someone was listening and they're like, ah, looking at the past is a waste of time. Great, there's some resistance. And that's probably a place where your range is not as open as wherever we prefer, wherever we, wherever a preference would take us. So again, one of I'll take this back to where we started, which was early on, part of my range was answering tests and doing things the right way and being very efficient. And if you were to say, Adam, you know, this conversation with this subordinate or this direct report you're working with, you really need to feel into what's going on for them. You got to get in touch with the human being there. I'd be like, that's inefficient. We've got something that needs to be done yesterday. And that's me pulling back into my safe range. And the, the place that was broadening my own range was like, oh, what if I leaned in a little bit to a little more tenderness and intimacy and relationship? So wherever we have resistance is often a compass for us saying, hey, there's some work that you could be doing in this direction. Yeah. Reflecting back on my relationship with some of my closest friends who are very effective entrepreneurs. And one of them told me his mental model when he works with his, his people. As a leader, his job is to get the most out of his people mm. as a way to support the company. So whatever that particular employee needs, he will provide, whether it be very masculine, just very intentional, directional command, he would do it, and whether it be very feminine, supportive space, he would do that too. So I think to your point, essentially, that's what you're referring to. Is that a accurate, again, re reflection of what you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. 
there's a lot of different directions that we can go. Honing in on the seven-year journey of being prominent, were there specific places of moments of like doubts and like, should I continue with this and shouldn't I do it? Like, nobody's listening. Share with us a little bit of the internal journey as you're sharing more and more of you. Yeah. So I find just as a precursor to this that I create a breakthrough and move past my fears, but it's not like I pass them in a linear sense and it's by fears you're gone. It's more like I lap them. So I'll like yeah. over, I'm sorry. I'll, lap, I'll lap them if I'm on a racetrack that's circular mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, or like a spiral going outwards. And so what'll happen is I'll overcome my fears in one area. And then I start to play the next game, the next bigger game for me. And then I'm like, what the heck? Once again, I'm afraid of not being enough, or I'm afraid of being whatever the fear is. One place where this really showed up for me was I led, I'd been leading coach training for about five years at this organization that completely transformed my life. And it was time for me to move on. And my wife, who's a coach, and I started partnering with a really prominent coach in the coaching space. He was really well-known, very magnetic individual. And over time, I just, I, I ended up leading a bunch of his work. So he was running these large intensives and I was running is about 200 people or so. And I was running the leadership team, which is about 40 people. And what was happening was a couple things. One, because of the position I had, it, it cast a halo. Like people were like, oh, it's Adam. So I had some fame or some, a bit of a platform through this person. There was, I got to be beside him. He drew a bunch of people. And then those people saw me as a bit of a right-hand man or whatever you want to call it. And then we would get into conversation and then I would create clients from that. And what happened was I found myself towards the end of my time there at these events, really resentful. And I was resenting this person who had given me a lot of support, given me a lot of space. And I noticed what was going on was I'd be at these events and I'd spend all my time outside of the main room, just sitting there chatting with people, connecting, but ah, this person, they're doing it wrong. So I was like, let's look at that. That's weird because I'm choosing to be here and yet I'm showing up resentful. What's that about? And as I was moving through some work, what started to come forward was, oh, I'm resentful of him for doing it wrong because I'm not willing to create my own stage and have me be the target of resentment. I'm not willing to show up and do it wrong myself and then feel the same energy. It's easier for me to sit in the the wings, so to speak, and project Adam. It became very clear to me at that point, oh, I got to create my own thing at this point. I got to stop being behind someone and I got to step out and start making my own intensives or whatever it was. And because you asked about doubt, holy crap, was that terrifying? Like I just, I, I had all of these thoughts that were like, how are you going to create the same following? Cause you don't have this person doing all that work for you and it's all going to go away. And who the hell are you to run all of those thoughts? And I guess it's been 
maybe two and a half years since we stepped away from that. And, you know, we're still building it. It's not like we left and then everything was magically finished and completed. But I noticed those doubts are starting to go away. And now there's new doubts showing up because I'm up to something beyond just recreating that. But that's a great example where it was clearly the right move. And yet all of my fears, no, stay here. This is safe. And you have a steady stream of clients and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, thank you for being so open about it. Happy to. Uh, there is a journey to step into prominence really for everyone. Whatever the aspiration or the intention destination is, whether you're a YouTube influencer or whether you're a thought leader, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a leader within your organization, whether you're going for to be a politician, a certain amount of vulnerability, you're stepping to the unknown of not knowing. So uh, I would say it's totally normal. It's part of the human journey of, is this for me? Am I good enough? Or should I be doing this? So what about just staying in and being safe in my comfort zone, in my job, in my position, under the wing of somebody else? I, I love that. So what did it actually take for you to move beyond the resistance? Because I'm one may say, the, this is my experience. I'd lo love to hear your thoughts around it. The tactical things are actually easy to execute. It's the inner resistance that takes most of the work to break through. So what did it take for you to break through the inner resistance, the self-doubt and all of the other you know, mental chatters? I'm going to give another example where this is more yeah. prescient, like more sure. present, if that's okay. Yeah, of uh, because at this point in my career, I'd been, I'd probably been coaching for about a decade. I had a bunch of work under my belt. So I was really clear, like I can't, I really believe that as a coach, you have to lead. You can't talk about do this and then be a different way. It just doesn't work. So I was really clear. I got to move on. There's no other choice. But when I first started this work, I was working as a lawyer and building my coaching practice on the side. And what happened was I'd arranged for the person I was working with, we were going to start a firm together and I was going to work part-time, which was like an oasis in this desert of the legal practice. Like, how do you manage to make that happen? And I realized one day I woke up and I thought, fuck, I don't want anything to do with the practice of law. I don't want to work part-time as a lawyer. I want to spend all my life coaching. That's what I think I'm here to do. I'm just doing law because I'm afraid. I don't think I can make this work. And so what happened was I got a ton of support from my coach and the people that I, I had a lot of support structures. And I went into work and I said, hey, it's not going to, you know what? I got to either get this airplane up off the ground or smash it into the mountain face. That's the only choices I can really make. And then I had three months left between giving this notice and when I was going to quit. And every single morning I woke up with two thoughts. The first was maybe today's the day I let my partner know I made a mistake and actually I'm going to stick around. And the other thought that kept spinning around was like, hey, life's not so bad. Maybe you should stick around. This isn't that bad. This is pretty good. You like being a lawyer. You get, And I did enjoy some parts of it. And so it was interesting because my fear just kept, look how good life currently is. Don't leave this behind. And to actually stay the course required a tremendous amount of support. Conversation every week with my coach, my wife standing for me to do something beyond what was obvious and easy. And the last thing I'll say is 
of course, like we said earlier, the whole world I'd created around me agreed with my fear. It was like, don't do this coaching thing. It's wacky and crazy. Be a lawyer. It's the gold standard of success. Like all of that stuff. How did you come to the conclusion that coaching is your dharmic path? That this is the thing that you really want to devote your life to? With a lot of bumps and scrapes. The, the coach training program, I the second one, I took two. And the second one, the one I later on led, was very you could say like adamant that the path to, to be a relevant, powerful, potent coach that makes a difference for people is you got to just keep doing your own work. And so during my year of training and actually subsequent, like the years I was leading, I was still getting a lot of this training. I had so much story in my head that coaching was a bullshit profession. It was, I wanted to do it. And at the same time, it's watered down and it's weird. And most of the people in it are making very little money and are frankly, not really trained or I just had a ton of stories, many of which are born out in reality. And I was in this, it was almost a little schizophrenic. There was a part of me that was like, I so want to believe this is possible. And another part of me that was actively being cynical about it. I really want this to be a thing. It's not a thing. And so I was in this war, I guess. And what would happen is I would create a small breakthrough and see, oh, wow, I can really see how this actually does make a difference because I let it make a difference for me. And then that would move some of that stuff out of the way. And, and the other thing that made a difference is in spite of all of those fears and stories yelling in my ear, I kept practicing. So I stayed in action. I kept coaching people because I really wanted to believe it. And what would happen is every week or every two weeks or every month or however it was, something would shift for someone and I, or mm. something would shift for me. And I'd be like, I really think there's merit in this. I think there's magic here. Those voices still show up from time to time, by the way, mm. way less often, way less, but maybe like once a year these days, once a year, there's still a moment where I'm like, am I doing anything? Is this making any difference for people? Is this all just a Ponzi scheme? I move through it a lot faster now. Yeah. It's like the dojo behind me. It's the internal, hey, am I actually shifting the way I think, the way I act, the way I'm being? Yes. As well as, am I actually making a difference for the people that I talk to? I would have to say, you know, doing this podcast is very similar to, in that sense. Is this actually making any difference? I enjoy my conversation with my guests, but the ripple effect, is it actually helping someone else? We don't know until, yes. until the signal comes back. I'm like, oh my God, I was thinking about suicide. Thank you so much for really talking about you, your guest staring down the barrel of a gun, thinking about whether or not to pull the trigger. Yeah. And now, now look at his journey and where he's at right now, I've decided to choose otherwise. Oh, shit. The thing that we do here, the ripple effect is unthinkable. We don't know. And it may, and it has saved people's lives, literally. So, yeah, we never, it's part of the tragedy is a cast in a negative light. But like part of the truth of being a human being is we never get to see our light because it's shining everywhere we go. So when I come into a or when you come into a room, we're all like, oh, I got a little more CKE in here. Yeah. When you leave, we're like, oh, it's a little less CKE. 
but you never get that because everywhere you go, that's the way you see the world through that light. And so I'm with you, like creating our art, be it a podcast or whatever, can often be this experience of toiling in obscurity a little bit because we can't see the difference we're making. And so it requires a lot of trust, a lot of willingness, like this is the truth that's here for me to express in this moment. And I'm going to trust it's a gift. Are there practices that you do regularly as a way to continue trust, continue surrender, continue to hone your craft in spite of all the negative inner chatters happening? Yeah, the, the biggest one is recognizing and asking for my very human need to be acknowledged. So mm. I'll unpack that. But like the first reason I say recognizing is because most of us are actively in this conversation with ourselves that I don't need to be recognized. That's needy. That's weak. We need it. It's human. We want to be of value. We're, we have an innate desire to be an impact and to have value, and we need to be recognized for it. And since we're all so adamant that we don't need it, we're, we're just starved for it, which is why you get things like the boss that sort of ostensibly is giving praise to his team, but you find out all that praise is really about how awesome he is as a boss. That's because that guy can't own that he needs recognition and he can't be responsible for getting it because he's pretending it's not there. So one, I recognize I need acknowledgement. I'm up to a lot, so I need a lot of acknowledgement. Like I'm holding a lot of stuff for a lot of people. It's It can be thankless work at times. So recognize that truth. And then two, I have a lot of people that I can ask for acknowledgement, and I do. And that doesn't mean, can you tell me my hair looks nice? I ask them to acknowledge me for, can you acknowledge me for who I'm being in the world? And then those people will say whatever they have to say, but they'll be like, yeah, you know, thanks for, thanks for your commitment to just keep doing this. I don't know. I'm just making it up, but that's so nourishing and we need it so much. And we're all anemic. We're all lacking it because we're so insistent. No, I'm strong and I don't need anyone to tell me I'm all right. And it's no, we do. And it's a beautiful gift to give to people, to let them acknowledge us. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, why you resist persists. I really yeah. want that acknowledgement, but I can't tell you because that would make me look weak. Then what you what ended up happening is this weird, creepy vibe. Yes. Please love me, but don't tell me you love me. Like a weird situation. Yeah, compliment me and then I'm gonna bat it away, but compliment yeah. me and you're like and then we yeah. get tired of playing that game because it feels weird. Yeah. 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 So thank you for owning that. We're all human for sure. Uh, yes. Who doesn't like to be acknowledged? Totally. Very good. So share with us a little bit about sort of the way you think about using social media as an infrastructure to put your creative output, because I see you everywhere. You continue to write. You have Instagram, you have YouTube videos, you have, you're on Quora. Like, how do you think about using social media as an infrastructure to shine a light? It's cool to hear you say that because my internal voice is like, I'm not doing enough, <laughs> but there is a lot of places where I am. So I think the heart of any service-based business will say, and I, I suspect these days probably 
whatever the non-product uh, based business is, this is true for as well. But like the heart of all of that is connection. And it's fine to create our art by ourselves in a cave, but then the world misses out on that. And your art won't have the impact it's here to have. You'll get to, my camera's doing wacky stuff. There we go, it's gonna focus back. You'll get to, I trust it's gonna focus back. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fuzzy, there we go. You'ning get to create your art with- through. Totally, so I'm gonna fuzz myself out. So we can create our art by ourselves and keep it to ourselves and we'll get to avoid what's scary, which is that people might criticize it, but we never have the different, we never make the difference we wanna make in the world. And so social media provides this beautiful opportunity to do what Austin Kleon, who wrote Show Your Work, which is a phenomenal book, he calls it like our job is to publish. And it used to be you could only publish if you knew someone who had a Gutenberg press and ran a newspaper. But these days we have all of these ways we can publish. And what that does is it allows us to share our art with the world and then the world can respond and tell us, I like that I'm not paying attention to. And that helps us get beyond our own inner critic because we are terrible at determining what we create that's artful and what is garbage. The world can help us with that and will. The world is more than happy to tell you what it thinks. And so I think social media is a gift in two ways. One is because it allows us to publish our art and to share our art as an act of generosity with the world. And two, it gives us an opportunity to confront our fears that are getting in the way of doing that. It's like, oh, I'm gonna share this and what's gonna happen? I'm gonna hit this live button, what's gonna go on? We'll find out. Thank you for that, for sure. Yeah, I, I love you pulling the printing press. That's what, that's awesome. I like <laughs> that's Ninja. I, I like it a lot. Nerd points. Uh, but how do you bucket the different offers that you have? Because in my mind, as a creative person, you can write a billion things a billion different ways. So yeah. how do you think about, you know, how right on Twitter and right on Quora and so forth. So I'll share my, maybe that would be a yeah, yeah. pickup point there. I used to think that it needs to be so profound, like the Tao Te Ching, like Confucius. So I never say anything because it's never good enough to right. measure up to that level. And then I shifted my mindset to, hey, this is a journey. I'm just sharing bits and pieces as I'm figuring things out myself. So that takes the pressure off a lot, right? Then now I look at, okay, so there's a lot of different work that I do. How can I share more readily my intermediary packets? Uh, and my teacher calls it cellular sawdust. So as mm. I research share, as I find an interesting quote share, as I have something that's doing idea sketch mode share right then and now social media is just different buckets i can put the, these intermediary packets into curious wow. to know your thought of how you think about that sort of the metacognition in the way you share different things to different platforms first of all i love that sell your sawdust is such a brilliant very profound and i can relate to what you're saying like i want to hit the highest watermark of profundity and then so then nothing ever gets shared 
So to be honest, like I, I feel pretty, I'll just share my, the way it looks for me, which is not that sophisticated. Like for the most part, Facebook's been the platform I've chosen to share my art on. And frankly, it's hard. I find it really difficult to divide my energy to Twitter. And then now people are like, you got to get on TikTok and dance at them. And then I'm just like, oh man, I can't get on all, I just can't. And so the way it works for me is I tend to just put whatever I put onto Facebook and then I have an assistant and she syndicates. So she puts that stuff into LinkedIn, to YouTube, to wherever. And so that tends to be my strategy. And then there are outliers. Like I have a lot of stuff that I've written on Quora, more just out of boredom. You know, I was bored and I was looking through Quora and I would see questions pertaining to leadership that are just the same answers everyone's giving on leadership. And I was like, ah, there's such a more profound way to speak to this. Okay, I'm going to write it. And then I just started doing that, not because there was a strategy or because I thought it was going to create something, but because I felt inspired to do that. And so I really, I'm a big fan of learning to hear the voice of our inspiration and following that a little bit more in terms of this stuff, rather than I got to be on Facebook. I got to get a LinkedIn profile. All of that to me kills inspiration. Yeah. Uh, So the tagline of this particular segment could be trust your creative boredom. Yep. I love that. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It's so true. Beautiful. By the way, I saw your dancing videos. That's a very unique mechanism. <laughs> a very unique superpower that you have. I don't know if you. So I was interviewing a few different musicians, Freddie Ravel, which you know who. He literally has a keyboard underneath his desk. So whenever he feels inspired doing a podcast interview, he just play the chords and illustrate <laughs> his point of view. And I was like, that is masterful. I love that. That's so unique. No one can be Freddie Ravel the way he does it, right? Yes. So if dancing is a unique superpower that you have, I highly recommend you bringing that aspect of who you are and then the movement part, right? Being the body and as a way to cultivate that inner higher self. Just a suggestion. Totally. You think, you know, know, do what you may with it. Share with us a little. For me, when I saw the way you dance, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I love that. I want to see more of that. Can you share with me a little bit about how you got into that in the first place? Yeah. And I'll share a little bit of how I, one of the ways I integrate that to my teaching, if that's of interest. Yeah, I, it is. Please. So the, the styles of dance I, I learned and taught are popping, locking. A lot of people know them as the way people often think of them as. If you've ever seen a bunch of break dancers, I'm the guy that never touches the floor. I'm always standing up and waving or strobe lighting or dancing like a robot. And so I got into these styles because I loved breaking when I was young, but I was a nerd, or at least I related to myself as a nerd. So I was the kid playing Magic the Gathering in the library. Yeah. And the cool kids were breakdancing in the gym. And I so wanted to go and learn what they were doing, but they were cool and made fun of me. And so I just didn't. I didn't even try. And so what happened was I secretly did it as best I could. 
I eventually went to a rave when I was about 19 and I saw people doing something similar. And because of the way raves were and the high use of ecstasy or Molly or whatever it's called these days, I had this real experience like, wow, you can do whatever you want and it's accepted and amazing. And that got me down this path of wanting to learn how to dance. And so I went to our local hip hop store and I said, hey, do you have a video on this wet noodle style of dance? I don't know what it is. And they're like, oh, you got to check out this guy called Wiggles. So I bought this tape, this VHS tape, and I plugged it into my VCR and I just watched it with my friend, my best friend on loop. And we just studied what he did. What is fascinating about this to me is I learned this dance by watching someone on video and I, I really was committed to practicing in front of a mirror. So my technique was spot on, mm. but I was all technique and no soul. Mm. And eventually the founders for these styles of dance came to where I live and I got this chance to, for about one week and then another week a year later to train with the founders. And it was really interesting because I thought they were going to teach me the right technique that was going to open my dance wide up. And instead they had me doing stuff like the funky chicken and these dances called like the Bart Simpson, which is super simple. And I was mad. I, I was looking through my notes not too long ago and it's like, oh, these dances suck. This is stupid. When are we going to do this? And on the other side of that, what, what happened was they brought soul. They brought the soul of dancing underneath my technique. So I'd learned this like really soul. I was like a painter who paints beautifully intricate work and there's no heart to it. There's no soul. And that's such a perfect metaphor for how I was showing up as a human being. I would say all the right words to connect with someone without any connection underneath it. I would tell the perfect jokes without any real mirth present in me. And the journey of me becoming an actual dancer who really dances rather than just some technician who can do a lot of stuff really well has been a mirror for my journey as a human being. Mm. There's a lot. I'm, this is a smile of recognition. I totally get <laughs> what you're talking about. I was an excellent tactician or technician. Yeah. The, you know, like I was telling you earlier, the head was operating on its own. Everything else was, yes. its job is to carry the head. That's about it. Totally. So I had to learn how to actually find my own soul, right? My heart. So yeah. my heart, you know, body and spirit, all of it integrated together as a way to really operate truly as my most integrated highest self. Share with us a little bit of it. You wanted to share your curriculum with the movement part? Yeah, yeah. This is just a small example. So like with what's called an arm wave, it's hard because we don't have much view and probably won't translate well in audio, but I'm going to do it anyhow. An arm wave looks like this. The wave passes through your arm, up through your hands, whatever. And when people wanted to, yeah, that's pretty good. So when people wanted to learn this, when they come to work with me, we start by teaching them each isolation, which means first just moving your fingers down and then moving your fingers and then your wrist and then back up so that you can break each step of the wave down into its individual components. That's boring for people. They're like, why am I just moving my fingers back and forth? I want to do that whole arm wave thing that you're doing because that's sexy. That's what gets me the dates on the dance floor. It doesn't. I've tried, but still. Yeah, That's the yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the truth is what people then want to do is they speed through it. Because if I do it quick, I don't have to see where I'm not catching each isolation. 
And I find this is such a mirror for our learning process. One of the things I'm really inspired to do lately is to support coaches and entrepreneurs to create prosperous practices, to really create clients as a, an effortless expression of themselves being in relationship with people rather than running sales scripts, which most of us hate. And so the first step in that is, is learning how to just connect with another human being without any agenda beyond that. And most people are like, but Adam, how do I connect with the right human being? Oh, that's your agenda. Already you're trying to figure out where the right people to connect with are so you can get them as a client. Stop doing that. Just begin by connecting with people. And so their resistance here is a lot like people's resistance to doing that first part of the arm wave. They're like, but this won't get me the money and the sex and all the stuff I want. And it's, I so understand, I so get that feeling. And at the same time, I promise if you learn this foundational piece and then we can layer the next piece on top, it's all gonna click for you and you're gonna, it's gonna make so much more sense. So it gives me a lot of empathy for them because I've been that guy like, but I wanna do the cool thing. Take me right there. I want to do the fastest thing. I want, to, I want to do the biggest thing. I want to get to the yeah. grand gestures. And I love the fact that you have them focus on the foundational piece. I call it the atomic unit, mm. the atomic skill yes. of anything. And people may think like um, CK and Adam Sokan does some really esoteric things. Well, we're not. It's, it's having the mental model is the atomic unit of whatever it is that we're trying to do. It could be breathing. It could be the way you yes. stand. So I so appreciate the way that you articulate it. Mm. How does one, as a recovering cerebralist and talking to the current Adam, how would you recommend someone who is super heady who, under, who can say brilliant things, but they don't embody it. They don't live it. They don't have the heart and soul behind it. Yeah. How would you, what are some of the atomic unit skills that you yeah. can advise them to get more into the soul and the heart and be integrated human beings? So one of the first things that brilliant people do, I call this the quality of brilliance, is we filter everything through, do I agree with this or do I disagree with this? And, and we're pretty good at that because we've amassed a wide body of knowledge. So it's, we're good at checking with it. And the trouble is that what can get in then is only the stuff we agree with. And if we disagree with it, it can, it's discarded, it's set aside. And what that ensures is that all we ever get is something that's already consistent with what we already know. I'm going to provide a few practices, but the first thing I want to do is set up this context and invitation to brilliant people to, instead of asking, do I agree with this, ask themselves the question, where and how is this true? So the, the temptation is, is that true? Which is another version of, do I agree with that? And instead, the opportunity is to ask, where and how is it true? I'm going to assume it's true. Now, where do I find it? And then the place that we can begin to look is like, what's missing in my life? What is not what I want it to be? Where am I dissatisfied? And because brilliant people tend to create a life that's eight out of tens across the board. So our life is pretty good and most people would give their right arm for it, but we know we're like, ah, 
I'm not hitting the tens. And so part of what allows us to begin opening up is to ask what, where am I settling for eight out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10? And that's going to start to give you a path like, okay, what, what would I start to create if I wanted to make a 10 out of 10? And then that's going to, of course, drive up all our resistance and blah, 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 blah. But this allows for the beginning of the journey, I think. So I actually have a follow-up question here. And this is an inquiry. I don't have an answer here, but it's more of an inquiry. So some may say the progress or the innovators of our time come from a place of discontent. And at the same time, uh, discontent also is a source of suffering. Yes. It seems a little paradoxical, right? How do I be content and at the same time uh, pushing our the progress of humanity forward? So if you can say a little bit more about that, because it's, it's a natural segue to what you just said. Yeah, it, that is the... Most of the breakthroughs I find are in the paradoxes where we're like, why can't I just be content with my life? But at the same time, discontent is the compass for me that leads me towards what's next. And I guess I choose one or the other. And I don't have a really clean answer, but the truth is often in walking the tightrope between those two. Like this was the best art I was able to create and I can do better. So how can I be totally delighted with the art I've created in the moment, and at the same time stand for something that I can create beyond this? How can I continue to strive to do better in my life and be completely content with where I'm at right now? And I don't have, these are, this is a great example of where words will fail us, because that's probably what you do with your clients is certainly what I do with my clients is I help them live into that rather than give them a prescription to like then go and do Haha, now I've got the rule to do this. Now I've solved, oh crap, we're back inside the same water. Yeah. I don't have an answer either. It's Like I said earlier, it's an inquiry. I agree with the premise. Progress of humanity, innovation does come from a place of discontent. And at the same time, if we totally live in that discontent, it's a miserable life. I just yeah. not want to, I've been there. So I know it's not fun. It leads to a really dark place. And at the same time, if I'm totally content, which is great, and then there's no problem, like problem, no problem in the world, and I don't yeah. need to solve anything anymore. So I, I love a, a little callback to what you were saying earlier. If you, I can't remember how you articulated. If I'm totally satisfied with my life, what do I want to do? Something like that, right? Yeah. I think that's a really good forcing function. If I'm totally satisfied with my life, I have all the money in the world all the time, I've done my vacation time, I'm actually bored of vacations, what do I continue to want to dedicate my life, my energy, my creativity towards? I think that's a really good place to start. And, and look, looping back to, <clears throat> I recently came across Neville Ravikant. Ah, yes, he's brilliant. Yeah his almanac and he said something along the line of the source of suffering is not getting what you want or something like that and how i interpret that to this conversation is minimize our non-negotiables mm. as in 
if I have a lot of non-negotiables and I'll be discontent all over the place. But if I have just one or two areas of non-negotiables, then I'm flexible everywhere. And then these, I can focus all my energy on innovating and, and or improving the lives of in this area per se. Am I making sense here? Yeah, I was just thinking as you're making total sense. And I was thinking like, that's such a Naval kind of approach. Like when I listen to him, he's very, he's figured so much out. And again, what shows up for me is our range. So if my, if my range, what a lot of people's range is, is how do I get to be more content? And then eventually we end up with, to your point, there's nothing we want for. We've eliminated want. The truth is that existence, to be alive as a human being, includes degree of suffering. It is inherent because we, as a, as a being, have an infinite amount of expression that's available and a finite amount of time to express it. So we will never put all ourselves out there. So if you just even sit with that truth, there's inherent heartbreak to it. And so some people, they relate to like heartbreak is bad and shouldn't be. Therefore, how do I solve heartbreak in my life? I will be content exactly where I am and never want for anything. And now I can rest. And it's, that's fine, but you're missing out on a part of life to your point, right? But our heartbreak does source something. It sources beautiful poetry and music and it creates incredible innovation. And so the question I always turn back to is how can I be with more of what is showing up in my life? Yeah. And, and whoever's going for that worry-free life, this is one man's opinion, not the truth is that's an illusion. It's, yes. it's the horizon. You'll never get there because just like our desires, discontent is also infinite. So wherever you are right now, it's good to be aware and be and really the concept of what we're, I don't know if you've done Vipassana or not, but I have, have you done Vipassana? I've not, I've sat in like silent meditative retreats, but not specific the Vipassana format. So the Vipassana format basically go over the mechanics of how Buddha, Gautama the Buddha achieve his enlightenment, just the mechanics not necessarily the religiosity of it. It trains you to be equanimous, not crave for things that you really want, but yet don't have, or be aversion to the, to the negative emotions that you do have, but don't want. So then to really sit with that. And in my mind, the, the interpretation of equanimity is just be with everything, yes. all of it. Right, just be with that as a way to just enjoy all of it. That's the short summary of my takeaway. I'm curious to know. So, what was your number one takeaway from sitting in that meditation retreat? I'll share what mine was a vision fast. So, it was four days sitting in an eight foot circle with no food, no a uh, little bit of water, and no one around me. And just all I could do was sit in that circle, get up to pee one day or one time each day and then sleep. That was for four days. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done because it was so boring and I love being stimulated. And boy, what is the thing I took away from that? 
what I took away from it was how attached I am to what I took away from it was how attached I am still <laughs> all this work decade of work still super attached to stuff. And when you take that away, wow, it's hard for me to be with that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, the biggest one was the insanity of the mind. Ah, yes. Because all that creativity, all that energy, all that craving for stimulation, it had nowhere to go. For the first three days of Vipassana, all you're supposed to do, technically, is supposed to focus on just this area. Right. And I was like, are you kidding <laughs> me? And I just like, this is six hours of it already. I can't handle it anymore. And then my literally would just create images of like fantasy of the past, yes. the future. And they just like all the energy and I had to just sit with it and just be okay with it. And that is one of the hardest thing I've ever done. I've said in a lot of different things. It's like, yes. Yeah. I, I really left. Wow. Solitary confinement really is a form of torture. Like I can see why people go back into the prison population where they're at risk of being murdered over sitting in a room by themselves for days on end. Hmm. So curious to know what some of the other transformative peak experiences, technologies, inner technologies that you've come across really help you open your eyes to see blind spots, to elevate your consciousness. Let's talk mm. about that. By far the most powerful one I found is working with my own coach because, um, in a committed ongoing relationship because what will happen with me first of all i created myself as a man who doesn't need support that's how i because that works for living from your head up everything's controlled managed i got this i don't need your support you won't see me vulnerable and so the way i tend to be about support even when i do allow it is i get it when i need it and then i'm like now i'm good and so one of the things it's funny we're talking about technologies i'm the technology the first one is commitment to ongoing support mm. so every week i know i'm in a call with my coach and what's fascinating is when you start to commit to that kind of ongoing support one of the first things me and my people will learn is that we've been living a life that doesn't require much support oh this is the life i can create on my own and there's a much bigger game to create like to play in my life that i can't do without that kind of support and so it requires me to lean out over the edge in ways i just wouldn't do by myself because they wouldn't be possible by myself mm -hmm. so, so that's the first one and then like modalities i've been exploring lately i've been drawn to plant medicines so ayahuasca i've sat in ceremony a few times and what I find with ayahuasca is it provides an incredibly profound insight and you're doing some real work for however many days you're sitting in ceremony. The danger is we don't often invest in the ongoing support after that. So like we talked at the top of this conversation, we can get pushed back to our old way of being, but that is pretty potent. And the third thing I'll share is coming out of that, I've felt drawn two more like indigenous teachings. So like the teacher, I, the shaman, I guess I was working with for a while for about most of last year was 
a combination of Incan teachings, First Nations here on the west coast of Canada. I'm and sorry, what did you say? Incan, Incan teachings, like from Peru or mm -hmm. that, that area, and then a lot of First Nations from the west coast of Canada and stuff like that. And just like the, the wisdom that's been around for millennia mm. that we're just starting to, to pay some heed to, really. Mm -mm -mm. There's a lot to unpack. So let's do it one by one, if you don't mind. Talk about teams. So your coach is part of your championship team, right? Yes. What are the criteria that you've used as a way to chose, choose your coach? Yeah. So I look to their being. What that means is not, do I think this person knows how to sell a product or do I think this person's good at creating clients or do I think this person's not so much their results, but is the way they occur to me as a human in front of me, do I feel a depth of being, do they feel really fully expressed? Is there a way that I feel with them that inspires me? That's what I want from a coach. Someone who's got a lot of depth. And then the other thing is a little bit of intimidation. So this mm. coach I'm working with now, I can remember she showed, she was, she did a guest spot in the year long training I took and she really pissed me off because we were going through spirituality this weekend and I was having a, tr a challenge answering a question. At one point she just casually, she was working the whole room and she was like, how about you? Are you going to play with us or not? I was like, fuck you. I'm struggling here. What are you talking about? <laughs> and in that oh, question, she was, she just was not giving my struggle the significance that I was. Mm. She was asking a question. It was like, hey, you don't have to struggle in this. Just show up. And I was like, no, but the struggle is real. You don't understand. And that pissed me off. And so when we've been working together now for maybe four, maybe in five years. And at the start, I told her, like, hey, I got to tell you, you really pissed me off at the start. And so that's a little bit there. And she was really gracious about it and just, like, oh, wow, I get that. What do you like? What do you need from me? She cleaned it up really beautifully and and gave me the space to share all of that. So that's those are the things I really want from a coach is like full expression, a being that's inspiring, and a little bit of intimidation. Thank you for that. Awesome. Let's talk about plant medicine. That could be a big topic. But... <laughs> yes, totally. So for someone who was super heady yourself, like a lawyer, software engineer, and turned coach. How did you end up choosing plant medicine as a path? So I, the interesting thing is that while a software developer and a lawyer, I was abusing substances like crazy. And I'm pretty responsible, so I never let myself get into anything like cocaine or crystal meth or anything that was like really the potential i'm aware i'm habit forming so like, I'll stay out from those hardcore things but like pot alcohol those i used a lot and and as a youth i'd always as a youth that's a weird way to put it as a kid i'd eaten mushrooms with friends just to get fucked up and but there's no reverence around any of this it was just something to do to get high and to feel what I was not able to feel in my life. That's why I was consuming substances as a lawyer was 
I'd shut that heart off to such an extent. I was using substances to bypass the structures I'd put in place that kept me in prison. What started to happen was I, it sounds funny, but I just felt called in these directions. I had this thought like, huh, I'd like to revisit psilocybin, but with a lot more reverence, with some ceremony around it, some structure. And ayahuasca was this thing that I started hearing about it and people would show up in my life that would be, I'd meet someone who was a shaman and they'd be like, Hey, you should come sit in ceremony with me. And I'd think, ah, I don't, you don't feel like this, you, you, your being doesn't feel clean. You feel a little weird or sketchy. I'm not going to trust you. And uh, the way I ended up sitting in ceremony was a friend of mine said, Hey, I'm going to Costa Rica in December. Do you want to come? And I was like, automatic. Yes, let's do it. And then I later found out it was to this week long retreat center that was all about ayahuasca. And I was like, Oh, great. It just came into existence. On the one hand, you could say accidentally is the way that I found my way to it as a mature man, but I think it's a little woo woo, but I think more accurate would be that I just started to feel more and more called in that direction. And I heeded the call. Awesome. Thank you for that. No, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. That you trusted your friend and you surrender. Yes. So knowing what you know now, what would you say to the younger Adam of what you receive? Hmm. Well, I don't think I'd change much about the younger Adam because like his path led here and anything I could say, he would just argue with me and, and tell me why I'm wrong. So <laughs> I'd be screwed as soon as I tried. The, what I would say, would I would just love him a lot. I would just give him a lot of love and acknowledgement and and that would be, yeah, that would be what there would be to do. So you wouldn't even introduce this modality to the younger Adam at all? I, I really don't think I could have changed like the way things unfolded and they've unfolded beautifully, like right on time, everything seems to be perfectly timed. I could have been like, Hey, there's this thing called coaching and you, you're not going to be a lawyer, but boy, I got so much from law school and I created early clients there and it allowed me to do what societally was the right thing for me to do and then to choose out of that towards what was the right thing for me to do and making that choice if i short-circuited it by trying to give me coaching as the path beforehand i think i would have missed on a whole bunch of richness i guess it's it almost feels like a cop-out answer but the truest answer is yeah i don't know that i would try to have done anything different yeah yeah i don't think it sounds like a cop-out answer at all um I think we are the way we are. I mean, the ego wants to get things faster, easier, yeah. bigger, and bypass you know the difficulties. So I get that. Yeah. So I was actually asking. I wasn't asking the question from the ego side. Like, how how do you bypass the difficulties? Because in in my mind, I love the person that I am today, and I wouldn't change uh, a thing about anything about, about my past at all. All of the pains, the difficulties, the challenges heartaches, everything, and all the wins as well. Because I, I get to appreciate so much joy and gratitude, everything in my life because of my journey. So I wouldn't yes. change the damn thing for sure. So I appreciate yeah. the way you answer it. But I would say to 
maybe in the younger version of CK probably is not the accurate way to articulate it in, in precisely. Let's say to the listeners who are listening to this, mm. how, how would you share this particular modality to them, maybe curious about it, maybe aware of it, maybe a little intimidated by it, maybe like, what the fuck is this thing that they were talking about? It's totally not. It doesn't make sense. Why would you go to a place and drink this brew and whatever? Like, I wonder if you have anything you want to do there. Thanks for that clarification. Couple thoughts. The first is when I came back from the vision fast, my dad asked me, would you recommend this to anyone? And my answer was yes, if they feel called into it and not otherwise because it was horrible and I'm glad I did it because I felt called into it. But if someone was like, I'm going to do this to get more clients or don't, it's a terrible reason. So what I think, what, what would I say to people that are like, this is a weird modality. First, I would affirm them. I'd be like, yeah, it is weird. And a lot of what is outside of our range will occur as weird. And if you had told me 10 years ago, hey, 10 years from now, you're going to be this deeply spiritual man who has learned to let go of the brilliance in his head and sits in ceremony with shamans and has a following, I would have been like, fuck off. <laughs> There's no way. None of that, especially not the spiritual part. And I would really affirm like, yeah, it probably will feel weird. and. There's something we can't really touch with our mind. And what plant medicine allows us to do is it, it opens a window, not a door, because you still have to do the work on the other side of it, but it opens a window to get beyond your mind. And that can really be profound. It can really have us get in touch with something that'll start to break us through the, the perfect shell that our mind creates for us. Thank you for that. Mm. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll probably say something similar to that. I will say to the to someone who's maybe curious about it, maybe aware of it, is if you're on this journey to discover the totality of what's possible for you, as Adam said, this gives you a window. It doesn't replace, it doesn't fix, it doesn't, it doesn't change who you are, but it gives you a glimpse of your potential. And then you have options to say, hey, do I want to stay in this way of being, in this way of action, this way of you know, communication? Does it still serve me? Yeah. And if it doesn't, oh, I could change. It gives you that option, that clarity. In my mind, the way I articulate it is, it doesn't let you escape reality. It's not an escaping thing. It's actually an access to hyper-reality. You yeah. lift the veil so you can see, oh shit, here are my illusions. And then and at the end of ceremony, then you can pick and choose. Yes. Do I want to keep the illusions or not? That's the way I would articulate to anyone who's listening to this. Yeah. I call that being put at choice. We Once we can see the truth, we can still choose back into the old way. You get the choice of the red pill or the blue pill. And that's I think that's beautiful the way you said and it, it really allows us to pierce that veil a little bit. Mm. 
You want to talk about men's work a bit? I know we're yeah. jumping hard left. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. It's all connected, I'm sure. You want me to just jump in anywhere? Or do you have a particular question you want to start no. with? Jump in. Why don't you define men's work first? Yeah, like, sure. For me, what does that mean for you? And what's your journey of men's work? So the teacher I work with currently, I'm going to use his verbiage, which is traditionally we've talked about like these, you can almost call them like primordial energies of masculine energy and feminine. The teacher I use is, he talks about alpha energy and omega. Actually, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Came back track. I forgot to touch on the third point that you were mentioning. Oh, yeah. yeah. You were talking about learning from uh, wisdom teachers, right? The, the yes. um, First Nations as well as was the other the the Incan? Can you say yeah. a little bit more about that? Because as someone who used to be a lawyer, who used to be a software engineer, very left brain, yeah. Why the interest in studying the wisdom teachers from Peru as well as the First Nations? I would say, like, ultimately, because I've been, I felt called in that direction. So that's. One of the things that's interesting for me is the first phase of my life is really like head-based brilliance, learning to own my brilliance. And then second was heart-based brilliance, brilliance. So coming out of my head, not figuring things out, but trusting that there's a brilliance inherent in the way I show up in the world. And then the third path has been like spiritual or spirit-based brilliance, which I'm just making these terms up. But for me, that is letting go of knowing how anything's going to turn out full stop and not needing to really know and trusting that there's some divine current that we're all flowing through and that trusting that I can be with whatever's showing up and I can handle myself no matter what happens and then surrendering into that and living my life from that place. And so as I've stepped more and more into that third stage, that's just what started to show up it was like, it wasn't even that I was like, oh, I want to follow a shamanic path. It was like a friend was like, hey, I'm working with a shaman and I think you should know them. And then we started to talk and then this person was offering a course and I was like, great. I, that's what I feel called to do. A course on what? It was the way she described it was a course on <laughs> her words would be like, we're brainwashed. So we got to scrub all of that out so you can start to see the truth at a deeper level. And so her on learning, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Or unlearning might be an even better way to put it. It, it was like, boy, was it a hard course. It was a ton of reading and reading, not at all like reading a book. Like I'm reliable to do a lot of reading. I've got a background in law. This was like the sentences were all loopy and, and it was hard to follow. And the idea was to learn not to read something, but to be read by something. So I'd be reading this and then just notice what sticks, what starts to come forward and show up. And that was coupled with the notion of the medicine wheel and moving through from child to adolescent, where most of the West is stuck in her teachings, into adulthood, into elderhood, and that progression that we move through. And so a lot of that stuff is still integrating. In my head, I'm still like, I don't, what do I do with this? I, nothing. Let it sit for now. So it almost sounds like a Japanese koan. That's a great way to just, there's a perfect metaphor for it. Yeah, the whole idea of a koan is it fucks with your rational mind. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. So the 
classical one would be once the sound on one hand clapping. Rational Maya is what the fuck is that? He's <laughs> trying to again Chinese finger puzzle and yes. what the fuck is this? And it's similar to the Vipassana experience with your mind. Yeah. Like just oh my god, I can't figure it out. And then finally, it couldn't take it any longer. And then it surrender. It gets what is truly trying to communicate in between the lines. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly how it occurred. Why? So you say you're called to, I think your words were hit brilliance, heart brilliance, and spirit brilliance. By the way, I love that. You should write that down somewhere. Distinguish that for me one more time. So head would be to discipline them. Yeah, actually, I don't want to project. So head-based yeah. brilliance, like often most for brilliant people, we start even before that because we can't own our brilliance because we're trained by the world that like don't get good results. So it's good to be brilliant, but don't own it because then you're a nerd or you're arrogant or whatever. So then we're like, ah, I'm smart, but I'm not that smart. We do all this weird caveating. So the first stage is like to own our head-based brilliance, to trust. No, I'm really smart. Like I can think good. I've, I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> this is, I'm, I can trust myself this way. And I, even though I might still feel like an imposter, there's a truth to the brilliance that I have. And then the next is heart-based brilliance, which is coming down out of our head, seeing the brilliance in everyone rather than seeing the stupidity from head. We see a lot of stupidity in the world and compassion and empathy. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And trusting my brilliance does not have to be something thought or intellectualized. So like I can start to trust that just by virtue of the way I naturally will show up in the world, that will be imbued with brilliance. And mm -hmm. then the third stage is the spiritual or spirit-based brilliance, which is kind of learning to trust and surrender into the brilliance inherent in existence as a whole in the universe and trusting like one, I can cope and be with and thrive in whatever shows up in front of me. And that there is a brilliance far beyond what I can conceive. And part of my role on this planet and this existence is to trust that and to let that carry us where it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like the collective consciousness, the idea of destiny almost. That's right. Yeah. Although without too much of a plan, because sometimes with destiny, we're like, there's no free will. And I don't know that we start to get a little esoteric here, but yeah, actually, I actually was having a conversation with a neuros with with a theoretical physicist, and we really gone deep into the whole idea of free will. Oh, I love that stuff. Yeah, I don't know if I can do it justice to recap what we had talked about, but if you really think about how a brain is wired together, it's a glob of neurons. And to say that I have singular idea of who I am, I think that just looking at it mathematically, you have a very complex chaotic system to have a singular output. It's crazy. It's yes. just not the way it works. It, you're going to have tons of different conflicting desires and how you come to that conclusion of saying something or doing something. It's a, uh, it's a uh, mathematically it's, like a, I don't know how to articulate it well. <laughs> Simply said, it's a clusterfuck. It's yes. even with a supercomputer, you can't predict 
this input goes in, this input comes out, this output comes out. It's just not how it works. So yeah. anyways, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you, you want to say something about this whole idea of free will and, and determinism? Sure. What comes forward for me there is it's a great, like just the way you were describing it even is a great, how would I put this? It really showcases the limitations of head-based brilliance to me, which is I can think about all that and try to work it out. And I, I believe that there will forever be something outside of our grasp. Einstein said that there, we get to see just this thin layer of the truth of reality. And anyone who doesn't, when thinking about that, feel some degree of spirituality is really like just bereft of something that's available. And so for me, there's, I love thinking about this stuff because I'm a nerd and I love thinking about all this stuff. And then there's a part of me that I've learned these days to delight and wonder in the fact that some of our existence will forever be unknowable. And it's cool that we can prove that part. We know from Heisenberg's uncertain or whoever it was that made the uncertainty principle. Like, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's always something that's outside of our ability to capture this stuff. So I find these days it's more fun just to be in the wonder of it. And part of the work that I do is to really empower people. If you think about our brain as layer onions, right? The deepest part of who we are, that's the deep truth, the, the super consciousness. Then you have yeah. different constructs that you have inherited from someone or someone has told you something or you told yourself just layers and layers. That stops you from really believing and tap into that inner that deep insight that's capable that you can really bring forth to the world. So a lot of what I do is peel away those limiting beliefs, uh, the, the inherited constructs. So then yes. you can tap into that and, and be free and truly express that, that deep creative desire to bring forth and actualize the world. Cause in my mind, that's what makes life worth living. Yes. You know, it's not about following some conventional path and just like, oh, when I get there, I'll be happier. And then the reality is you're not. There's <laughs> an illusion. Yeah. You think that I'll be happier when I X, Y, Z. It's just, anyway, without pontificating too much, this is, this is an interview about you. <laughs> <laughs> what, the other example of what you just described is where people are frantically trying to get everything done in order to experience peace. If I just get everything done, and if you look below the doing, because the doing makes sense, if I just clear all this stuff off, then I'll feel peaceful. But it's if we look at it from being, it's like you are being frantic and hoping that will result in you being peace. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I know. That, so great segue to men's work. Mm -hmm. I know that you study David Data's work, Blue Truth yep. specifically. Yeah. And, and in the blue truth, yeah, I mentioned somewhere, I can't remember exactly the, the passage, but essentially the masculine spirit desire ultimately completion. What was that word? Completion slash death, yes. right? Yeah. So we think that life is better, the masculine spirit that is, when things are done. But that's a ever present desire. It'll never get done until we're ultimately done, like dead. Yes. So curious to know. So that's a segue to men's work. Share with us a little bit about your journey to uh, men's work. 
Yeah. So again, I'll articulate like the masculine or the alpha energy is the void resting consciousness. It's emptiness. And then the feminine or the omega energy is everything in that void. It's the creation. It's the stars being born and the stars being blown apart and all of that. And so most individual everyone has a balance of these en energies in them but most people identify as mask as men have a greater degree of masculine energy and most people identify as women have a greater degree of female energy but to be clear these aren't really gendered their energies like you could think of them like the poles on a battery the positive and the negative or the masculine or the feminine or whatever i grew up more identified with my mom and so I'm a man with a lot of, there's a, I have a lot of masculine energy I've later discovered, but I identified with my feminine range. And, and so for most of my life, I was very sensitive and well, I still am, but like very sensitive, very um, concerned about not being a shithead. And when I say shithead, I mean like the man who fucks the woman and then leaves her, the guy that just blatantly checks out a woman. And, and so I learned to do all of this stuff to never offend and be the right man based on the standards of neo-femininity. I don't even know if neo-femininity is a thing, but whatever. Don't be that dickhead guy, be this. And what I started to notice, one, there was like a real breakdown in my marriage. When I talked about no intimacy, I was not exaggerating. There was no intimacy. There was no sex, but there was also no emotional intimacy. We were, we resonated like twin flames. So we had a lot of resonance, but no polarity is like the spark created between the two poles of the battery. If you had a plus and a plus battery, nothing would happen. There would be no circuit that got created. And so that was how my relationship was. My wife operated, she'd learned to masculinize herself as many women do in the current kind of climate or business world. And I'd learned to feminize myself and we were both hanging out in middle. And so I was drawn to men's work because I could feel that there was something available. And I knew that I had some kind of disempowered relationship with the masculine, but I didn't really know what it was. I can share more, but I want to see if there's anything you want to direct me towards now that I've said that bit. Yeah. So you work with your wife, right? Is are you yep. guys still okay? Good. So maybe talk a little bit more into the evolution of how you create that new polarity in your relationships and also how you beautifully and, and dangerously work in a business relationship with your wife. So I'm curious to know how, <laughs> how you make that work. Yeah. It has been an adventure with my wife. I'm, I'm really delighted to share. We've really turned a corner in the last year, but we've been working on this piece, this intimacy for a decade, probably. And hey, that's the nature of being a leader and a coach is that we're continually a work in progress and progressing in our work. And originally I started doing men's work and she thought it was stupid, which is totally not any of a criticism for her, when your man comes home and starts like doing breathing exercises, like ego eradicator or Wim Hof breathing or something. And I can imagine that would occur as quite stupid. And so initially she had a lot of resistance to it. And uh, I even brought her to a co-ed 
workshop led by my teacher at the time, who was named John Wineland, who's a brilliant man. And uh, she resisted it. She really was like unwilling to play with the feminine energy in part because she had a disempowered relationship to the feminine, just like I had a disempowered relationship to the masculine. And as we've worked at this, we've made steps together. Initially, her resistance, I was like, it's stupid that you're resistant. You should do this. And then, of course, what do you do when someone shows up that way with you? You tighten down further on your own resistance because you're right about it because they're making you wrong about it. And and so we've just learned to get better at being with each other through that. I've learned to let off my attachment and she's learned to surrender to me a little bit more, be more open to what I'm bringing for us. And to the point where we are today is we've been currently working with another teacher and he does what he calls two-bodied practice. So you can do all this work by yourself, but to the point we were initially talking about, when you bring another person into it, now there's energy in the space. And every morning we sit for 20 minutes and, and do, I guess you could think of it as maybe tantric practice or like the, I would call it, my teacher calls it the yoga of intimacy. So mm. using just our breath, we're creating polarity with one another, which is really profound because societally we have all this fucking baggage around sex. And mm. so that, and that's where we look to try to create intimacy, but it's like trying to work with centimeters using two tanks. It's just, it's hard to get to the nuance. Mm. And so with this kind of practice using our breath, it's amazing what can get created when we, when you get to that level of being connected with each other. So that's where we're at today. Yeah, go ahead. What does it look like? I, I don't understand role yeah. in the yoga of intimacy, but working with your breath, do you mean like synchronized breathing? Do you mean breathing yeah. together? Like, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So here's one practice that we do every morning, which is, or one of the practices we'll sit across from each other and the the bedrock of polarity is presence. If you're not present with each other, there cannot be polarity. So we start there. We set a timer of 10 minutes. And at first, Bay, my wife is working with me. And first she's giving me feedback on how present I am. How much does she feel me present with her? And she might be like, what I would need is to feel your breath more. What I would need is to see you stop fidgeting. And then once she feels me present, then she's shifting into giving me feedback to have me embodying more of the masculine energy. And there's mm -hmm. three pieces of feedback she gives me to support that. One is she wants more breath from me. That's the heart of masculine energy is the depth of our breath. Two, she can say, I want more of your heart. She wants more of my warmth. And three, she can say she wants more of my balls, more of the part of me that would kill for her the ferocity that is part of the masculine energy, the part of me that I killed because I identified all with my mom and not with my dad. And then once that's done, so she's making me trustable as a man, meaning she feels she could show me anything and I could receive it open-hearted, but without being blown out by it. And then we switch and now I give her feedback for 10 minutes, first to bring her to presence if she's not there. And then I'm asking for more light, more dark, so exploring the range of the feminine expression, or more expression. And I'll just put a little tail note on this, where most men shut their women down is where I want all of her fullness, 
But then if she brings us her darkness, we're like, whoa, no, don't shout, or, or we try to fix them. And it's, oh, we can't see that we're masculinizing them. We're pushing them towards this stoic, don't bring your darkness. And so it's a beautiful practice to have her, sometimes she's shoving me in that container of practice. And, and so that's an example of how we practice. Mm. So breath, and then what's the middle one before balls? Heart, more heart, which is always the one she wants more of from me. And not to geek out on the details, yeah. but how do you bring more of your breath? Because you had said breath is the access to our masculinity. So how do you bring more of that? Is it is it literally breathe deeper like Winhoff-esque or is, yeah. it, is it metaphoric? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so one... There's my interpretation, and then it's partially her job to give me the feedback if I'm not getting there. Mm -hmm. So usually more breath, she's wanting to feel my breath more deeply, like down into my stomach, down into my balls, like drawing the breath all the way down. And in, in yoga intimacy, the man is breathing both partners. So she's, this starts to get a little metaphoric, but I am breathing so deep. And so my breath is so deep that it's breathing her. She's almost feeling energetically that I'm drawing breath down her lungs and then up her back. The way that looks in practice is she might say, I'd need to feel your breath in your stomach more, or I'd need to feel you breathing out your nostrils less or whatever it happens to be. So it's more of something she's feeling. And then she's giving me feedback on that feeling and trying to get more of what she's needing from me to feel like she could share all of herself with me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to underline this for whoever is watching. This is a practice of ways of being, of relating to each other. Yes. You know, whatever the container is, whatever the narrative, historical narratives may be, you may or may not believe it, which is totally okay. But nonetheless, it's a practice. You're spending the time, you're giving each other feedback. To me, that's ultimately super valuable there. For sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you wanted to say about uh, men's work? There's definitely a lot, but uh, at the same time, I'm also looking at our time together as well. So anything yeah, else yeah. about men's work? Uh, well, I kind of want to speak to what you said about working together with my partner. Can I go that, down that path? Yes, yes, yes. I'm curious. Yeah. So first, my wife and I have separate practices, and then we collaborate on some stuff. So we're not always working with the same people. Her people are somewhat different than mine because she's a different human being than I am. But what I will say is being married to another coach is like the best and the worst. It's the best because if you're really committed to this path, your commitment is always to be able to be responsible for more of your experience in life. Meaning if I do something and it has a particular impact, I can own, oh, how can I see that I created that? And the reason I would do that is because it gives me access to power. I'd be like, oh, I caused that. So I can do this differently and now I can create a different impact. I have more power. So it's beautiful to not, when a coach is married to someone not in the coaching profession, they're doing all this work to be responsible and the other person might not be. And I would imagine that would be challenging. Plus we're total nerds for this work. So we're always talking about this stuff and like playing with it and we just can't get enough of creating stuff in this field. It's impossible in the worst because you cannot coach your partner 
but you think you can. Hold on, I got a cough here. So I can see all of the stuff that my wife is doing. The trouble is I'm in it with her. I'm playing out the reciprocal of her pattern. And so I'm always like, oh, this is just your blah, blah, blah. And you need to blah, blah. And then it never works. And so in that way, it can be so infuriating because I have to remind myself, oh, yeah, stop doing that. And consequently, we it's really important for us, I think, both because of the work we're doing and because of how slippery that can be, that we have a lot of people that support us. So we have a teacher we work with for yogic intimacy. We have a counselor that we see once a month. We just have a lot of structures to support us deepening our relationship because that's what we're committed to. Yeah, I love that. You consistently putting championship teams to support you individually, to support your relationship with your wife slash as well as the business side of things. Yeah. yeah. One of the slippery slope that I notice is people with coaching skills think that they can be a coach to their partner. Yes. Oftentimes unsolicited. And I personally am guilty of that and have been guilty of that. And every time I did it, it just never, ever works. I think <laughs> yeah. she's going to find this so insightful and so yeah. brilliant. She's going to change her ways. Nope. She signed up to be my partner. I, I am to be her partner. And the partner, the role of a partner in my mind, happy to please chime in, is to be accepting yes. and supportive and provide that space to be everything that she is, to really believe in her highest self, as well as have that container for her, for her biggest shadows too. Yes. My job is not to be incisive and be the coach and so forth. I'm curious, you know, like how do you navigate that? Because as a partner, you're not a coach, but at the same time, you're also not going to roll over to let her ego to do whatever. So how do you find that line to being an empowering partner? Yeah. I'll give you an example from today. Over the last couple of days, she's just been in a bit of a funk as we all get into from time to time. And her flavor of funk is she gets in a bit of a pit where her story about herself is very negative. My flavor of funk would be like, I get very impatient and like, I got to get everything done. Fuck off, get out of my way. So that's what mine tends to look more like. Hers is more, like, I suck. Nothing I do matters. You're doing awesome stuff. Everyone loves you. Like that kind of thing. And what's interesting about the dynamic there is she simultaneously wants me to prove to herself, prove to her why that's not true, but is also unwilling for it to be untrue. So I can be like, do you want to look at your views on Facebook just to prove that it's more than three people that like you? And we could do that. It wouldn't make any difference because again, she's in the cycle. And there's a part of me that wants to be like, you're amazing. Stop this and shout at her. That's not going to work, of course. There's another part of me that wants to be like, shrug my shoulders and be, fuck you then. If you're not going to let me if you're going to argue with me about this, fuck off. I'm going to go do my stuff. Tell me when you're better. And that's what we would typically refer to as like a bit of toxic masculine or first stage of practice. It's, I'm going to go to my solace. You need to work this out, blah, blah, blah. And the place that I'm practicing and where I went today was just to really look, I don't need you to be any different. And I love you. And if you want, I will tell you 
to the cows come home, how amazing you are. And I'll point to all the stuff, but I also noticed that it's not making any difference and you keep arguing with me. And so I just want to check in and see, do you need me to do that? What's going to serve you best? And sometimes that makes a difference. And she's no, I know I'm just doing this. I just, I'm sad. And then we can get below it and connect. And other times I ask that question and she just goes, no one likes me on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, okay, we're, just, <laughs> we're right back in it. Okay. And I just have to love her through that. I do my best art. I love her and, and I make mistakes Yeah. and I forgive myself as best I can when I make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> what a blessing. What a roller coaster, right? That you've yeah. Chose. Yeah. But rapid. Let's see. Do you mind if we go through some rapid fire question then we'll complete? Not at all. Maybe Let's do, a do it. Another time? Okay, great. Yeah. What's one of the most worthwhile investment you've ever made? Uh, the coach training program I took that was a 20K USD investment when I was $100,000 into debt and had no money to my name. Mm. Wow. You open a loop. I, I have to follow up with that. Like, how did you what's the mindset around it and and how did it work out for you yeah it was terrifying again the whole world that i'd created around me was like don't do this law is the path and yet i felt on some visceral level like below my intellect was like this is not right viscerally i had met this person who was one of the leaders of that program at the time and everything about her was like different from the rest of the world and I just kept getting into conversation with her and I'd be like, look, the coaching profession seems fucked up and people seem really wacky and I'm not inspired by them. And I'm worried that this money I'm going to spend is like throwing good money after bad. And she didn't try to convince me otherwise. In fact, she agreed with a lot of what I said and would just hear me and be like, I really get it. And it makes sense. And here's why this might be different. Do you want to have a conversation around that? And so... It took a lot of conversation, but eventually she supported me to let my heart choose instead of my head protecting me from my fear. And that was the, once I did that, my life really hit a right angle in terms of the trajectory. Everything shifted on the other side of that. Thank you for that. I appreciate yeah. it. I'm sure it wasn't all, I sign up and then the day after. Oh no. That was awesome, <laughs> right? There's a lot yeah. of ups and downs too. Yes. So, yeah. Okay, good. We'll probably unpack that the next time we we talk to each other the next yeah. question is what's the most valuable but counterintuitive lesson you want your younger self to learn the answer lies in relationship not in the right answer to yourself to others yeah yes actually to both but like in relationship with other people Mm. Yeah. Rather than, oh, here's the right answer. No, that's not the right answer. It lies somewhere in being in relationship with someone. Mm. You open another loop. I hate to <laughs> not to keep it right. <laughs> but about how do you uh, really cultivate relationship? So you had mentioned much earlier that just be interested and curious and open to everyone versus trying to say, quote unquote, finding the right people to talk to. Yeah. What's beyond that as a way to cultivate relationship with other human beings? The, the biggest thing that gets in the way of me being in, first of all, like, I think for most of us, relationships innate, and then we learn to put things in the way of it rather than like, how do I learn how to be in relationship? It's what do I have to unlearn? 
So mm. the main thing I put in the way of relationship is what I'm right about. And I'm right about a lot. I'm a smart dude and I love being right, which is part of what drew me into law. And what'll happen is someone will say something and I'm like, they're wrong. And then I'm either, then I have two choices, hold in that they're wrong, but try to keep talking to them. And that energy comes across anyhow, or just outright be like, you're wrong. Here's why airtight case. And both of those, the person's choice on the other side of that is, okay, I can either feel like I'm in the energy of being wrong and then stay in relationship with Adam, but that's not very fun. Or I can just leave because it's a bummer or now and then I'm also right. And then it feels good because I get to be right with Adam. And so often what there is for me to do is it'll sound a little simplistic, but what if you're not right, Adam? What if you sit down? What if I sit down everything I'm convinced I know is true. And I just put myself in this person's shoes and really got how the world occurs to them and how in their world, what they're saying makes complete sense. It's not, oh, it makes sense because they're dumb, which would be how I used to hold it. It's like, how does this actually make complete and utter sense? And from there, now I'm over there with them and we can actually like start to do something different. So that's often the best way for me to find my way back in a relationship. Yeah. That's a great tactic or mindset to take on, especially now yeah. post uh, US presidential election 2020. So true that. Yeah, for sure. What's a purchase of $100 or less that most positively impacted your life in the last six months? Huh, $100 or less. Okay, this will be like silly. Yeah. I love video games. I have a friend of mine recently got me into a first person shooter game called Apex Legends. And I have a little control, I have a controller for my PlayStation and I bought, <laughs> I delighted that I'm sharing this. This is the thing. I bought this little thing that sits on, it, pl it plugs on top of the right joystick, which is the joystick I use to move around my vision. And by having that joystick twice as high, I have way more precision with how I move my thumbstick. So in the last six months, that's made a huge difference. <laughs> Nobody's ever shared that before. Thank you. Thank you. For anyone who's interested in men's work, like medicine, wisdom teaching, really getting access from the head to the heart, to the spirit, are there some books that you can recommend? for them to learn this new way of thinking about it. Yes. Yep. The first, I'll recommend a few books. The first two are, they're not an analytical book. They're, they're both stories that speak to a way of living your life that's different from the head-based way of living your life. So the first book is my all-time favorite book, it's called Illusions by Richard Bach, B-A-C-H. Amazing book, just so beautiful, really profound. I read it usually once a year. And the other one is called Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman, which mm -hmm. was made into a movie and is really a, another beautiful book. And both of those books have a lot of, they're so rich with learning without giving it to you as an analytical thing you got to put in your head. So I love those two. And then I'll give one more. Will I give one more? Let me just look back here. 
I think those are the two that I would really give. Oh, actually, I was wrong. I lied. The other one I would give is for people that want something more practical is called Getting Real by mm. Susan Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. That book's amazing. And it what I love about it is it gives some head-based ways to get into your heart. You don't have to be like, oh, get in my heart. How the fuck do I do that? It like actually walks you through it, which is quite beautiful. Yeah, I don't want to take a few minutes to really acknowledge you for, well, a number of things. One, you share really truly who you are and your stories. And, and I know that at some point it felt a little bit uncomfortable and really just getting real about the things that you struggle with or you're currently struggling with. And that, yeah, you did it courageously. I really appreciate just how you show up, being present, being grounded, and being an embodiment of what's it like to be free from the illusions of the ego and really step into this full self-expression of brilliance in the body, sorry, in the head, in the heart, in the spirit. Thank you so much for just sharing and showing up so beautifully on this interview. Thank you, CK. This has been such a treat and it's hard to believe it's been two hours and change. It's just flown by.